So, Jez, I guess start off, maybe just a brief summary and outline of your career, maybe from the last 20 years or so, or when you started in work in marketing. Yeah, I moved into marketing at uh, Nintendo, and I was so well blessed for one of my first products ever to be the legendary Pokemon. So I got to launch Pokemon cool. in 99 <laughs> in the UK, and that was an amazing experience, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Then I went to ITV Digital, and I created uh, an advertising duo, a comedy double act, Al and Monkey, the famous Johnny Vegas and Monkey. And this was really Johnny's break into the mainstream, you know, in an advert. Then I joined Orange and I created Orange Wednesdays. And that was when I really got into mobile phones. And from there, I went to live in Chicago and work at Motorola, where I ended up becoming CMO. And that was during the Razor heyday. And that was a fun time, obviously. Um, it was the coolest phone on the planet. Uh, and then from there, I went to work for Microsoft and I ran their consumer business, first of all in EMEA and then in uh, the worldwide business based out of Seattle. And that's things like Xbox and Surface and all the PCs and yeah. Office and had a great time there. Then I came back to the UK and uh, I was one of the founders of a digital startup in the football arena, which was called Otro. And it was a social media platform for the world's top 19 footballers. So people like Beckham, Messi, Neymar, Zidane, Suarez, Cantona, and got to meet some of the legends of the game and create content for them. And now I'm just about to embark on a new uh, venture. And then in the middle of all that, I also wrote a book called The Punk Rocker Business. And that was really a book that I wrote because I, I wanted to tell the stories from my career, but not from a self-centered point of view. It was, the stories for me were always the things I wish people had told me when I was starting my career, the things I've learned through my career. So how can I give people who are just, you know, embarking on their career, um, the benefits of some of the things I wish someone had told me 20 odd years ago? Exactly. I think that's good good point as well. Like you said about starting out in your career, because I guess what that this is what this podcast is about. It's about people, you know, leaving university, maybe maybe not even gone to university, maybe just need left college and have said, you know, where do I want to go? Do I wanna you know, I have these struggles, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go to university, do internships you know but it's hard I suppose when you're 18 19 and you, you know you need to have a job or have some kind of you know something to do essentially um, it is quite hard um, you touched on the point where you started Nintendo was it Nintendo you said yeah. yeah but you before that you did you never actually you didn't go to university did you you were tarmac was it a tarmac yeah was it accountancy so it's quite is maybe tell us a bit more about that and how there was that shift maybe because I know you mentioned it in your book as well but for anyone who doesn't know yeah I to be honest, I didn't want to go to university because I, I'd gone into the sixth form and I did my A-levels, but a lot of my friends had left school when they were 16. They'd finished their O-levels. You know, my friends were the people who played on the school football team. And they went off to work in factories. And so from sort of 16 to 18, they were getting paid 60 quid working in factories. They had money at the weekend. I didn't. Um, and I didn't want to go on and do three years. And it was just to the point when I'd started playing a little bit of semi-professional football and 
I wasn't that good. So I'd done well to kind of get to the level I'd got in my area. And I didn't want to have to go to somewhere new and try and break in. And, and, and sport was my main focus at that time. I loved playing football. I loved playing cricket at weekends. And I found out um, from a guy who lived across the street that Tarmac were taking on management trainees. And they'd train them for six months of the year in accountancy. And then you'd work in the office for six months of the year and um, you'd be paid throughout the year. So I didn't have to have a grant. I didn't have to have a loan. I could get paid and still carry on some studying, but work some of the time. So it was a fabulous training scheme for me. And this was in the um, first half of the 80s. And at that time, it was a recession. And so it was finance people who were running everything. And I never wanted to be an accountant and I never planned on staying an accountant and I didn't. But for me, finance is the bedrock of business. Understanding you know, how money flows and the levers you pull to be able to make more money and understand the, the, you know, the cost equations in the business. That has to be the heart of everything. So for me, Mark, that was one of the best grounding, best, um, you know, sort of, if you like, development grounds for me because it enabled me to understand how a business worked financially so that when I'm then developing marketing campaigns and trying to get our products sold, I understand, you know, with the commercial economics of it. So I was very lucky to do that. I wish I could tell you it was all as planned out as it sounds now in retrospect. It, obviously it wasn't. Um, but when I got the opportunity, I moved out of marketing, sorry, out of finance initially into commercial activities. And then from commercial activities into marketing and then marketing sales and then running various businesses, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. You touched on university and speaking from experience myself and I suppose you know, numerous people, do you think marketing at university is essential for young people who want to go into the marketing field or do you say, you know, save your money, do some internships, that kind of thing. So I think there's a bit, there is a bit of a like, debate uh, whether or not university is always for everyone. Um, yes, I th there is absolutely a debate about whether university is for everyone. I do think these days, not having a degree, it would be harder to succeed than it was for me back then. Fortunately, I went on a management training scheme, so Tarmac looked after the first eight years of my career and made sure I had that, um, you know, the good start to my CV. Um, I think the thing I learned and the mistake I made in not going to university, because I do think I would have loved it, and I, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I wish I'd done it in some ways. The thing I learned at Microsoft was this concept about always learning. I'd got tired of stu studying and revising for exams in 18. I just wanted to kind of get on and do things. And, and you can make your way that way. You absolutely can. Um, but the thing I learned at Microsoft was you have to constantly learn. And there's a um, quote by Alvin Koffler, which I love, which is, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And the essence of that is effectively saying the world's changing so quickly, there isn't a formula. The formula is yeah. constantly changing. And what works 
today won't work next year and you constantly have to be unlearning and relearning to be able to keep evolving at the speed at which the world's evolving. Yeah, and no, I completely agree, which is funny actually because that leads perfectly onto my next question. And it's, do you think there has been a predominant shift of how, I say brands, but I'd say brands and companies have marketed their products for maybe when you were, you know, your Nintendo days to now. Do you think there's a bit oh. of a... I mean, it obviously has been, but it's just—it's just unrecognizable. <laughs> Social media. No, it is. It's unrecognizable. <laughs> it's unrecognizable. I mean, when I started out, it was television advertising. Yeah. And big broadcast television advertising, and I remember doing a presentation, which was I think well, probably two thousand and four when I was at Orange, and. I remember, and again, it sounds, it just sounds almost cringy saying it now, but I used to do this, what was a revolutionary talk, which I used to say um, to our call center staff going, you know, my view is that brands in the future won't be defined by big advertising campaigns, but how they interact with individual consumers. And this was really before the days of, um, you know, when the internet gave people and the, the power through their reviews. And I used to say to our call center staff, Every time you interact with one, you know, with a customer, if it's a bad experience for them, they'll tell 10 people. If it's a good experience, they'll tell two people. But we have to make sure that every time we interact with our customers, they walk away feeling, um, you know, feeling that they've been looked after and it's been effortless. So it's fundamentally changed. And again, you know, even saying it now, that was like what, you know, 17 years ago. Was it not long ago? Was it? <laughs> no, but it's 17 years ago. But the world is just fundamentally different. Yeah. And the thing I've learned as I've got older um, is that you constantly have to be surrounding yourself with young people who know, you know, who know the latest thing. And in the past, it used to be all about experience. You know, You've been there, you've done it, you've got 20 years, 25 years worth of experience, you've had the experience, you can apply it. Now, that's rubbish. It doesn't yeah. apply. <laughs> the people who've got the knowledge are the ones who've grown up with it and who know it. And so I try to keep up with social media, sort of, you know, knowledge and learnings and techniques, but it's the people who've been brought up on it who really know. And, yeah. and the job for, you know, sort of leaders like me or other people is really to empower those with the knowledge and give them the freedom to be able to go and show, you know, put their talents and their and their capabilities to good use. So everything's changed. It's took, you know the world's been turned upside down. Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's interesting you said the you know the kind of generation I grew up with the internet. I mean, I'm 25 and I still feel like even I don't understand social media. But the you know I my nieces and nephews are like or my cousins, they're all basically using iPads at age five and uh, you know, in 10 years, 15 years time, they'll be, they'll yeah. be my boss. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Again, it's, it's funny because I remember, you know, um, doing various presentations to my worldwide team at Microsoft. And I think it was in 2000, it was 2016. And I said, there's latest research has come out which shows that the shelf life of knowledge these days is four years. 
which basically means what you know now and which is right is out of date in four <laughs> years time and so there's there's a couple of implications about that the first one is you have to invest time every week in you know what I used to call sharpening the saw improving your capabilities honing your tools and talents and if you don't dedicate that time to improving yourself no one else is going to and you're going to soon become out of date um, and so I remember standing up and going you know I know that if I don't invest that time I'll be useless in four years time and one of the guys who worked for me who um, shouted out from the front row four weeks more like and <laughs> that, that kind of uh, you know got a laugh from the audience but it is about you have to invest the time to learn and you have to surround yourself with experts because the level of detail and the level of knowledge is not super, you know is not superficial I mean I used to do I used to buy big advertising campaigns it's not like that now it's all about you know the one-on-one -on -one, the detail the social media and the level of intricacies which are involved in that space are far more than big TV campaigns used to be yeah it's all about Google ads Facebook ads and oh, who's getting more clicks I mean it goes over my head yeah. <laughs> it's crazy um, going back to talking about like you know the I say millennials or Generation Z do you think they have it easier or harder than maybe you did it their age um, I don't know if it's easier or harder it's just different and everything is different and so I I don't think we've ever had a generation who is so well educated I don't think we've ever had a generation who is so opinionated um, and I think we have to learn as leaders to manage them in different ways I know I would come up and you know and I'd always be vocal in meetings and put my opinion forward but they as I say they're so well educated they're so opinionated and that's not a bad way that's not a fault. no 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 um, <laughs> that's good yeah but they you know they don't they think they can be running the company now and many of them have the capabilities so I'm not knocking them in any sense and 2020 was the first year when the millennials made up um, the majority of the workforce and you know I've been saying for the past couple of years we have to fundamentally change the way we manage them um, they don't like to be managed in the old way they it's a fundamentally different world and they're now the majority and companies have to fundamentally change and one of the things which kind of really brought it home to me was we had some millennial researchers came in and they were comparing and contrasting how different people looked at it and they put up a chart which was a typical organization chart with the CEO at the top then the directors then the scene then the managers etc etc and they said this is how we look at the world they said they then put up an org chart as how a millennial saw it and the millennial saw it wasn't structured in you know in um, seniority or anything like that it was structured around them and it was they knew Paul in finance Paul had a good relationship with the CEO and it was this kind of network map which is how they looked at the organization and it wasn't about levels and seniority and positions and hierarchy cetera, cetera, yeah. it was all about connections and network and who they knew 
And again, and that was like a bolt out of the blue, going, we've got to fundamentally change. You know, the world is so different. I think you mentioned, it was. I think it was another podcast where um, someone said that, is it in 20 years' time the president, next president will be a millennial? Is that, is it 20, was it 20 years? I don't know if that makes more sense. Maybe a bit longer. So, when, no, no I, don't, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's, I think it might even be shorter. I can remember Short someone saying this to me, and I can remember it being a startling, a, a startling statistic. Yeah, it's crazy. But it, it is, and they have the capability. It's not an experienced world. You don't need to be 60 to know everything, or be the current president of the United States is, you know, <laughs> yeah. is in his eighth decade. Yeah. But, um, but no, it's, it is a world where the young are increasingly successful. I mean, you only have to look at the number of billionaires, the number of leaders of the, um, you, you know, of the companies which are really growing and creating value. They're all young entrepreneurs. I think uh, they have this almost like a can-do attitude. And I think you mentioned previously, I wasn't sure if it was in your book or somewhere else where there was a, oh, was it a story about how someone's son had a phone call and so that couldn't hedges and he was like, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, oh, go on YouTube, <laughs> go on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, so um, this was a dinner I was at and I was at a dinner with a senior vice president of Fujitsu and he was telling the story about how, uh, this was in America, how his son going to college was so different from his experience. And he said, you know, when I was at college, we had to pay our way through it. So I'd work in a bar at night and earn, you know, $3 an hour or whatever the rate was. And he goes, you know, we'd scrimp and save our way through college. He goes, my son's making about $3,000 a month. And I'm going, well, how's he doing that? And he's going, He's buying and selling limited edition training shoes or sneakers. Uh, um, and he goes, there's a, you know, there's a gray market for them. And he knows what all the tra trainers are worth. So he buys and sells just like he's trading stocks on Wall Street. And so he was telling me all about this and he makes three or $4,000. So this, um, you know, my, my friend who's, uh, you know, the senior vice president at Fujitsu, was saying, so I went on a trip with him. I wanted to watch him. So he'd arranged to meet this guy at Starbucks. And what he'd done was he'd agreed to buy, he'd agreed to sell this, you know, great pair of trainers for a slightly lesser pair. So it looked like a bad trade. And, but he knew the shoes he was selling were phenomenal. And so it said to the guy, he goes, let me have a look at yours. You might need to bring along something else as a make good in the deal. So they met in Starbucks and my friend sat on a table across the way to observe what happened. And he got out his pair of trainers, showed you know, the, the guy he was trading with. And he fell in love with the traders, trade immediately. And then the son of my friend goes, I'm not really sure I want to do this. You know, he, it's not a good deal, you need to make good. So this guy then had to throw in another $150 worth of trainer and he ended up making a great deal because it, you know, if you like, hooked him in with the beauty of the first train. And that was his standard sale. And he said, but he doesn't just make money like that. He said, the following day, he's, he's at home and he gets a phone call and he's on the phone and he's going, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that, yeah, that should be easy enough. Um, how does $200 sound? 
And he put the phone down and my friend goes, what was that? He goes, oh, just taking a job. And he goes, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm trimming hedges in topiary shapes. And my friend goes, you don't know how to do that. And he goes, and literally shrugs his shoulder and goes, how hard can it be? I can learn anything on YouTube. And he went off and did the job. And he learned, and again, and it's this whole attitude of, I can do anything, I can learn anything. The YouTube is there as almost, you know, the greatest learning platform on the planet at the moment. And, you know, what was interesting, I told this story to, um, uh, to my team at Microsoft. And the beauty of telling stories is they get remembered because that's how things get passed on. And if you tell a remarkable story, they get remarked about and they, they get shared. Well, exactly. I, really, I remember it is from listening to it. I think, yeah, was it, I think you put it in yeah. your book, was it? Yeah, yeah. And it was I in the book. It. And it made I, me laugh and I was yeah. like, that's so true. <laughs> and anyway, I was telling them and a few days later, we were in a meeting and we were facing a particularly hard challenge. We didn't know what it was. And one of the team piped up and said, I'll take that away. I'll go and solve it. How hard can it be? And it was just this beautiful, if you like, naivety of going, we're going to go away and take it. You know, we're intelligent people. You know, we will be being hired by Microsoft. We're not going to sit here and almost defeat ourselves by a negative attitude. And so for me, and again, you know, it, it's kind of a principle which runs all through my career and all through my teams. It's going, I only want to hire positive people. Yeah. Positive energy breeds success. Negative energy just sucks the lifeblood out of me. So I love diversity in a team, except when it comes to attitude. Attitude is everything. And as a leader, I think it is, I think it's just a requirement of you not to let people with a negative attitude work in your team. Because what you're doing is you're inflicting that negative attitude on all the people you're working for you. And they don't deserve that. No one deserves to come to work to be surrounded by negative energy, which sucks the lifeblood out of you and makes days feel long and hard. If you've got a team of like-minded people who believe that they can set, achieve whatever they set their minds to, then the chances are they're gonna do that. And actually, I joined Microsoft. When I first went to Microsoft, I went for the interview. I didn't want to go. I thought they were a bunch of geeks. I really didn't feel they fitted. Um, I fitted their culture and, and they fitted my culture. But the thing which changed my mind was one of their values at the time, which was on a wall when I was sitting in reception, was they said one of their values was, we take on big challenges and see them through. And I thought, what a fabulous place that is to come and work, where actually one of the values you have is we take on huge challenges. And when I asked one of the, when I asked my potential, you know, my, who subsequently became my boss about it, he said, yeah, we take on huge challenges. You know, Bill first said, you know, our goal is to put a PC on every desk and in every home. That's huge. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, they're fundamentally, you know, almost achieved it. But it is about work for companies who set big goals and it will inspire you to do great things. I suppose it's that attitude where you kind of 
all that mindset where you, you know you go up and you look forward to going to work because it doesn't feel like work it, yeah it's like you know it's like it, this is the thing i get paid to do it's like it's your hobby which you're getting paid to do essentially yeah. and that's the way you want work to feel like and you know i spoke to quite a few people and some people you know blessed with that you know it might take you 10 20 years to find it it might take you your first job but you might you know if you get lucky enough and you look for the right places and you go work for those places where you know, it's not always about the money, it's about the people, it's about the culture. Yeah. And I think I think you say it to me, like culture is so important because yeah. you gotta see these people every day. You some you know, you, you, a lot of the times I think it was I don't know what statistic was, it was some scary statistic and it was you see your work colleagues more when you, you see your wife and your yeah. kids because yeah. <laughs> you you know you're there forty hours a week plus, it depends what you do. Um, and it's crazy. So I think it is, you know, super important to work somewhere where, you know, you enjoy enjoy the culture enjoy the people you work with and you've got almost it's kind of like that life like you said that lifeblood as well as yeah. there that positive lifeblood um, yeah. so no I completely agree and and the and the key thing for me which I'd say to anyone is don't settle no don't settle for anything less than loving your job and if you don't feel happy keep searching keep striving don't settle for, don't settle for a life which is l less than you're capable of living. And I mean, one of the other things about millennials, I mean, you know, I talked earlier about them being the most well-educated, the most opinionated, etc., etc. And and I love them. You know, yeah, the, <laughs> the thing I love about them most is they're altruistic, and they're not in it generally for the money. They're in it for how can we help the world be a better place? How can I enjoy the experience? And, and that for me is, you know, millennials have got it so right then. You know, when I was um, starting on my career, everyone was really worried about the money. You know, I grew up in the, I'm gonna age myself now, but I, <laughs> I grew up in like, you know, when I started working, it was the 80s, it was the yuppies, the young and upwardly mobile, you know, people which was all about, you know, money and, and people were just driven by greed almost. And it's just so wrong. And so that's where another way I think the millennials have got it right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, circling back to just the social side of things, um, it's a brief question. Do you think there's a strong importance on maybe people? Well, I'll go from my experience when I was at uni we were told to get a LinkedIn account. I had no idea, what, I was like, what's LinkedIn? That's for, you know, 40, 40 year olds who, you know, been working with 20 plus years. Um, and we, you know, we all had to do it as part of our assignment. And then since then it's been the most powerful, you know, app I have on my phone, I use it, I'm on it at least an hour a day. Um, you know, it's not just for jobs, it's about for networking, you know, seeing, I mean, it's great for looking at like marketing and communications and stuff like that and PR. Um, do you think there's an importance, you know, for maybe, I'll say the word millennials, but people starting out in the career to have an online presence on say something like LinkedIn? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn started out as a site to post your resume to get your next job. It's not that anymore. No. It's far more about connections and far more about sharing what you're doing and connecting with the right people and being able to get your message out. So it's, it's I don't think of it as a job recruitment site. I think of it more as a, a marketing site first and foremost and job recruitment second. And I know from obviously, you know, Microsoft bought LinkedIn, but we see, oh, sorry, Microsoft see LinkedIn very much as a platform for learning. 
and I think it will become, if you like, the YouTube version, (laughs) you know, for, for business. And so it is a tremendously powerful platform and everything, you know, business is still about your connections and it's about establishing those connections. And once they're on your LinkedIn page, it's, everyone knows, it's like your Facebook. There's people who are my friends from years ago who I don't see and occasionally I'll post something and he'll hit record with them and they'll drop me a message and I might not have spoken to them for 10 years but it's a way of keeping that sort of distant you know connection and handshake if you like yeah which just gets renewed at certain points in time and that's the beauty of being able to have it on LinkedIn I did it the other week a guy who used to work for me in the 90s um, is now in a very senior position at a prospect of ours and I messaged him and said hey how are you going let's <laughs> and it gave the company a way into a prospect which the company had been struggling with so absolutely get on LinkedIn invest time in it uh, one of the principles I've given all of my fellow leaders is nine minutes a day nine connections nine posts yeah it's good advice. and the posts are yeah you know are just comments or whatever like nine posts, minutes yeah. yeah but comments are so much more valuable than yeah, like. more engagement isn't exactly well yeah I, and again to be honest i hate the posts where people just put well done sounds great <laughs> the good, automated message good job <laughs> good job you know it's like if you're going to say something, say something meaningful. Some personal, yeah. <laughs> you know, say something meaningful. Which even in this case of going, you know, I love the fact about this. Yeah. I really like that element too. I mean, you know, it's comment. It's it's the conversation. Parti- be a participant. Don't be a spectator on the sideline who just clicks on a like or, you know, says well done. You know, be active. Be a participant. You know, comment. Yeah, I agree. It's funny you mentioned Facebook. I was, I was literally about to say it's, you know, it's... Facebook for business almost yeah. it is essentially like networking but on a professional level yeah but like you said it's evolving you know like you said it'll be like YouTube one day you know probably sooner than we think so it is interesting going back to the advice part as well what would be it's quite a generic question I know but what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting the career but like only like maybe one piece of advice um you get more than one if you want. <laughs> as, well, as many as you want. And again, this is going to sound this is going to sound cheesy. No, no. Um, but buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it does, you know. But there isn't there isn't one piece of advice. There's not that. Um, let me tell the story about how the title of my book came about. Yeah, actually, I was going to glean into that. Yeah, because, please do, please do. Because this. Um, this this really sort of set the tone for my principles in in business. The first thing is um, when I was working at Motorola, we entered into a partnership with Product Red, and Product Red was an initiative established by Bobby Shriver, who's the nephew of John F. Kennedy, and Bonner, and the the concept was. They wanted big brands to create a red version of their products. And then when consumers chose to buy that red version of the product, a proportion of the profits would go to help eliminate AIDS in Africa. 
So we signed up to the program and we created a red razor. And the launch concept was that Bono was going to go onto the Oprah show, talk about the pandemic that was sweeping Africa, which was HIV. And uh, then Oprah and Bono would go shopping down North Michigan Avenue, which is the main shopping street in Chicago. So on the day, Bono goes into Oprah's show, talks all about it, and then they come out to go shopping. They visit the Armani store and buy a red watch. They go to the Apple store and buy red iPods. They go to the Gap store and buy a bunch of t-shirts. They buy Converse training shoes. And then they were gonna end up in the Motorola store buying some red razors. Now about 11 days before the show, I had a phone call off my chairman, Ed Zander. And he rang me up and said, Jeremy, I've just had Bono on the phone. He's told me all about the launch campaign. I've gone, yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? He goes, yes, but where's our store going to be? Well, I've gone, well, you know, we don't have stores ourselves, but don't worry, I got the gap to give me a space in their store and we're building a store in store and it's gonna just look like, you know, a real store. And he goes, well, that's not good enough. And I've gone, what do you mean? He goes, you need to build me a store. I've gone, I know it, but you know, that, that takes 12 months, not 12 days. And he goes, you're gonna have to build me a store. I've got, I can't build a store in 12 days. And he goes, well, you're going to have to. And he hung up on me. So I went round to my boss's office, who's Ron Garrix, the president of um, Motorola's mobile device business. And he was on the phone and he shooed me out of his office. And a couple of minutes later, he calls me in. And I said, Ron, I've just had Ed on the phone. He goes, oh, no, that was him. I've gone, oh, did you tell him? He goes, yeah, I told him. I've gone, good. He goes, I told him you'd build him a store. And I go, I can't build a store in 12 days. It's impossible. And he just went back and started typing away. And I'm there going, Ron, Ron, it's impossible. And he's still typing and not looking up. And I'm going, Ron. And he just looks up and goes, are you still here? <laughs> Haven't you got a store to build? Get out of my office. So I go out of the office and I go and grab my head of design and we drive down to Chicago and we are looking for an empty store in North Michigan Avenue, which, you know, you can't find a store, you know, I mean, it's as rare as rocking horse shit, you know, I mean, it just doesn't exist. So we, anyway, miracle of miracles, overnight, we find out that there is a museum opposite the Nike store and near the Apple store, which has been closed for refurbishment. And the refurbishment is happening on the second and third floor, but the ground floor, the, the lobby, is not being touched. We told them our predicament. They agreed to rent it to us for four months from September through the main holiday season into January. And so we had a space. So we had the opening. And we then quickly set to work to try and work out how we can turn the lobby of a museum into a store. And my designer came up with this fabulous idea because the red logo were a set of parentheses. And he said, we could build false walls in the shape of the parentheses in a wooden frame and then stretch material over it and print it. We can get that done in the time. So he came up with some fabulous designs and drawings. We got workmen quickly building everything and reconfiguring what was gonna go in the gap store to put in this space. And the night before launch, I had to go down to the store 
and I briefed Kanye West, who was going to be our salesperson, on the phone and what he needed to say. And the store looked miraculous, literally to the point where I hardly realised Kanye was there at first because I was just blown away by <laughs> what the store looked like. Anyway, um, as I said, the thing happened, Bono and Oprah went shopping, they finished in the Motorola store. And we'd put all the other products in there to, sh to make it look like a real showcase for Red. When filming had ended, Bono saw me from across the store, ran across the store, hugged me, and just whispered in my ear, 12 days, 12 days. Smiled and walked off. Didn't need to say anything else. And when I got home that night, Jerry, my wife, had um, been at the Oprah show. We hadn't, because we'd been waiting in yeah, the store for yeah. him to come. And she said, it was really cool what Bono said about you. And I'm going, what do you mean? He goes, well, on the Oprah show, don't you know what he said? And I'm going, no, what did he say? And she said, Oprah asked him why he was launching in Chicago. And he said, we love all our partners, but the guys at Motorola are the punk rock of business. They build stores in 12 days. They put on concerts in Trafalgar Square. They just say they're going to do something and miraculously they do it. And the punk rocker business came from, um, he said, you know, with them, it's three beats and you're in. There's no long introductions. And so for me, that was, you know, magical in terms of going, we've got speed and action. We get straight to the point. There's no long introductions. It's three beats and you're in. And so when I started thinking about this concept about punk rock, there's eight characteristics of the punk rock movement which businesses could do well to adopt today and business people could do well yeah. to adopt today. The first one is have a mission. Second one, build a movement. You need followers. Third, radically new ideas and punk was radical. Fourth is about speed and action. Five is about non-conformity. Six is about saying it as it is. Um, Seven is about putting yourself out there. You know, punk did put themselves out there. They weren't shy. They didn't keep their head below the parapet to sort of avoid, you know, confrontation. They were big and bold and put themselves out there. And then seven is about authenticity. It's about being who you are and feeling comfortable being who you are. And so I adopted punk rock as one of the elements in my personal philosophy. And that's the second chapter in the book, which talks about the importance of having a personal philosophy, knowing why, knowing the principles that you hold dear. And so for me, I embrace them around this punk rock attitude. And it's not the, you know, it's not the aggression and the um, elements of punk, which, you know, if you like antagonize people, but it's about, you know, the belief of, you know, seeing that there's something wrong with the world that needs changing having the conviction to do something about it, stepping forward, leading, and sometimes, you know, moving at speed. And sometimes you'll trip, but if you're moving at speed and moving in the right direction, at least you're making progress because you fall forward. And then you just pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and, and go again. So for me, it's about going for it. Um, with, you know, with my articulation for me is a punk rock attitude and go for it. Life's too short not to go for it and to really, um, live the life that your potential, you know, that you have the potential to do. I guess, like you said, that was the inspiration behind the book. I mean, 
I think, like you said, in terms of advice, those seven, eight principles, they're like, they're the key basically as well. Like, you know, you need to have those, well, you know, there's necessary to have all of them, but I think to, like you said, getting started and anyone listening, you know, if you listen, I'll buy you, if anyone who listens, I'll buy him a copy of the book and I'll send it to your house. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need the followers. But, uh, but no, seriously, I know I've read the book. It's great. It's a great book. You need to work out the commercial. Yeah, I know. I just realized that. I was like, you know what? I'm going to have like a thousand people message me on LinkedIn now saying, yo, yo it's a bunk of a business book. So uh, hopefully, no one, uh, hopefully no one does listen. <laughs> well, no, just limit it. Yeah, limit it, yeah. First hundred people who email me. <laughs> Ten pound a pot. <laughs> I'm, I'm no money left. Um, Going back to the book, I mean, I, I've read it once, all the way through, and then I think I start, I mean, I read, you know, put that on a flap on the page, just read yeah. through the yeah, certain areas. But one question I personally wanted to ask, what was the biggest challenge in writing the book? Because I've, you know, I've read a numerous amount of books and I always wonder, you know, there's that much that goes into it. It's not just sitting down at a computer and writing out, but what was the biggest challenge for you? Um, well, let me start with what the easiest part was. Okay. <laughs> I have always tried to teach people through telling stories because they get passed on and, th and that's how people learn. And so the book is literally 88 stories from my career and every one of those stories, it's typically what four or five pages, there is a lesson and there's a motto in it. And I ask everyone at the end of the chapter to write down what are you going to do about it? Because it's not, and that's the most important thing in the book, is what mm. people write in terms of what are you going to do about this learning? Because this isn't, I'm not writing the story as my memoir. I'm not done yet. Um, I'm writing the story to try and help people to apply the lessons I've learned to their career and to their situation and to their job. So the easiest part was actually writing the stories because I've been telling these stories so many times. Some of the people who work for me are going like, I don't need to read the book. I've heard the stories a hundred times. You know, my wife, my wife hasn't read the book. She's gone, I've lived it. I know the stories. I really don't need it. None of my daughters have read it, I don't think. So really? no, Just, they keep going, we know it. Don't worry, we've heard it so many times. So the easy part was writing the stories because I've told them so many times. The hard part, was, well, a little bit harder part was just structuring the book into the chapters of the eight elements. But again, that was relatively easy. The hard part was just the editing, the yeah. painstaking editing. And I tried to write it as I speak. And I think I've tried to hold on to that. And I had uh, an editor who'd review it and, and we had some discussions and I dug my heels in on some you know, things. And then we had a long discussion about what font to use. And I wanted to use a far more um, modern font than we ended up using. But every piece of research I said was, everyone's used to reading books in the old Times New Roman or whatever font yeah. we've chosen. And they said, it, it will be far easier to read if you just do that. So I hated making that decision, but it was the <laughs> logical one. That makes sense. No, it's a great book. Uh, you know, I can only recommend it and you know, anyone should buy it. Um, just touching on the point, I guess, this podcast is, you know, being there, done that, and inside to success. And I guess the bigger question is, I mean, we probably should start with this question, actually. Um, how do you, do you personally define success? Because I know it's different. I mean, everyone's got their own version of success, but how would you define your, like, success? As I say, I always um, was a, a sportsman. I always played football, always played cricket, golf, you know, 
and I compete at anything. You know, my kids will tell you, I never, I never let them win at anything. <laughs> cards. Uh, no, and, and we're now we're playing an awful lot of cards, and they're now at the point where they're far quicker than me, and it's killing me, and I hate it. But I won't, I won't quit. I'm going to keep trying. Um, so, I've always been competitive. So winning's important. Um, and winning in business is often sales and market share and profitability and growth and all those elements. But I also believe in winning entertainingly. So in all the things I've done, I've tried to create initiatives, marketing campaigns, which make people smile, which inspire people. So, you know, Pokemon was a great product. Mm. Um, Orange Wednesdays was a great consumer-based initiative. Johnny Vegas and the Knitted Monkey were you know, a phenomenal comedy double act to, you know, carry on sort of entertaining. Um, Razor was, you know, a great product. So I've always tried to win entertainingly to inspire people because if you are making people love your product, love your brand, love your communications, then they're more attracted to want you to win and to be part of that. And so I, you know, I think it is about the business performance but doing it in a way which is entertaining and inspiring and making sure that you're working for a company who helps to make the world a better place yeah I mean Microsoft I honestly think no one has changed the way we live our lives more than Microsoft as a company the PC has fundamentally changed the way in which we all live and that's an amazing opportunity. But apart from being a great company, they're also a good company. Yeah. They do an awful lot of, um, they do an awful lot of charitable donations of software to nonprofit organizations. Um, there was one argument, you know, a famous argument over the Windows license. And it was a heated argument. And um, Bill Gates was saying, I don't know why you're charging schools for a copy of Windows. Why should we put any barrier in the way of people learning and progressing their education capability? If we do it right, we will get them so used to using our products that when they get a job and they can afford to pay for it, they'll want to pay for it because it's mm. been familiar. And that concept was what was behind charging $1 for a copy of Windows for education. And so Microsoft's mission was always about uh, empowering people and helping them fulfill their full potential. And that was the North Star. It wasn't about sales, it wasn't about market share, and it was always about how do we empower people to um, realize their full potential? And if they do that, the commercial model will look after the, you know, after the company's financial performance. So, you know, work for a great company, be clear on wanting to make a difference, going for it, having a little bit of punk in the attitude and bringing positivity and finding, finding what you're passionate about and living it. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I agree with all those points, to be honest. I mean, I think if someone said, you know, I'd probably say a similar thing. I mean, going back to Microsoft as well, you know, great leadership as well. Um, Satya Nadella, is he yeah. the current CEO? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I like to say work for a great company with you know great leadership because you know it does it does show in yeah. you know what they do. Um, coming to the end, but I'll ask a couple more questions because we've you know still got a bit more time. Um, do you think there's go back to success again? Do you think there is a correlation between success and money and happiness? I know it's a bit of a I mean, I suppose maybe money or happiness, but I, I put them together because I thought, you know what, people do tend to, you know, put them together, twin them together. Um, what do you think? Um, I, no, there is not a direct correlation. However, a lack of money can cause unhappiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> that's why I'd say. So I think there is a, I think there's a base level that you need to... Um, be able to earn so you're not constantly worrying about money yeah. but that's not that higher level as long as you can as long as you can um, be with the people you want to be afford to live in a warm house and eat food and be healthy that's the most important thing and I've been I've been blessed in my career to travel around the world, to work for some great companies, to stay in some great hotels. And every time I've been in one of those places, I've rung home and said to my wife, I'm gonna to have to bring you here, it's, you know, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And the thing which I've really learned is that it's not where, someone said to me, where's your favorite place you've ever been or whatever, and I'm going, it's irrelevant. It's not about the place, it's about the people. Mm. And it's about just being with the people who matter to you, who you love. And as I say, I've been blessed, so I'm not, you know, I might not be the best person to go with money or, you know, sort of, um, or happiness. But I don't think, I don't think the two are correlated. And you just have to be able to have, you know, enough so that you can, if you like, not be having to worry about it all the yeah. time. And it's the stress. I think it's the stress of not having money. Yeah, financial security, essentially, yeah. yeah. No, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, and also, also, let me also say, I think I noticed a difference in me as soon as I got to a point of realising, and there's so many people out there who this applies to, if you are good, you can get a job. You know, it doesn't matter if you get fired from one job. I'd rather, you know, I'd encourage you, go out on a limb. If you know you can get another job, be bold, go for some things. If something doesn't go right, 99% of the time, if you've got a track record of success, no one's gonna punish you for one, you know, yeah. sort of for one failing. You can't succeed, um, you can't win every single time. And as soon as I got to the point of realizing, I know I can always go and get a job. I know I can always put, food on the table and pay the mortgage and whatever for the family. I suddenly got far more relaxed and far more confident to be able to push things and express my point of view and be able to um, have a contrary view to what everyone else you know, was perhaps saying. One of the phrases I always pushed with my team was going, you know, there's a quote which was attributed to Albert Einstein, which was, be a voice, not an echo. And I don't want my team just to repeat what I've said and to agree with what I've said because they think that's what the right answer is. I want the people who want to argue. I want the people who disagree because 
I'm not always right. You know, this often I am not right. And if I've just got people agreeing with me, they're no use to me. So it's about be a voice, not an echo. Feel free to sort of say that. And you should be looking at your companies that you work for and going, do they give me the freedom to be who I am, to be a voice and not an echo? And sometimes they won't agree with you. And if they're the bosses, they can say, I don't agree and let's move on. You have to then sort of abide by that. But you have to be able to express your point of view. So it goes back to that saying, you know, you miss 99 of the chances you don't yeah. take. And, you know, if people said that to me and it's, you know, it does it echoes true. It's, it's you know, it is true because, you know, a lot of the time people, you know, sit on their hands and kind of wait for things to come to them or, you know, they kind of wait for things to get easier. But and I think it's, you know, people say it's, it's easier to get a job when you've already got a job or, I mean, I mean, I don't much agree with that, you know, um, I mean, I've always been employed at a certain point, you know, I've yeah. always gone from job to job because I hated that, you know, that period of uncertainty, yeah. but sometimes that's where you can grow as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, last question. Um, it's a question I'm gonna ask all guests, it's a bit, a bit of a rogue one, but if there was, basically, if you were walking down the street and all of a sudden your 10 year old self ran up to you, and he's really excited and he says he asks you all these things like what can I do you know what I'm going to be you know what, what's my job going to be I'm going to be successful I'm going to have some money or whatever, whatever and you can only tell him one thing and he doesn't break the space time continuum nothing you know you can step on as many butterflies as you want but you can only say one thing or one sentence shall I say what would it be do what you love yeah agree amazing and if you and if you don't and if you don't know what you love just keep looking until you find it. You'll find it. Great. No, that's perfect, Jez. I really appreciate you coming on today. And thank you for being my first guest. Amazing. No, listen, I wish you all the best with the podcast. I hope this one um, is the start of everyone that gets subsequently better from this. Amazing. Appreciate it. Cheers. All, right. all the best, mate. Take Bye. care.